Well, good evening. Well, it's good to see you. Thank you for coming out tonight. We um, thought we were going to have a few hiccups before, but Elliot saved the day, so thank you, Elliot. For those live streaming, apologies about the confusion of things being cancelled and then not cancelled. Um, but it's good news that it's not cancelled. Um, so, um, Jeremiah chapter 13 is where we'll be tonight. We're going to consider the whole chapter uh, in our study together, uh, but let's, uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this night. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to study your word. I do pray that you help me uh, to, to teach uh, clearly. And uh, Lord, I do pray that the Holy Spirit would help us uh, to understand and apply this portion of scripture. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, object lessons are very effective ways of communicating truth. Uh, do you remember uh, any object lessons that you have seen previously that have helped you to grasp a point? Uh, they are usually used more frequently uh, with children, and some of the coolest ones usually involve you know, bicarb soda and vinegar and making an explosion, and then you teach the kids the importance of not exploding in anger. Uh, or, or a common one is to have someone put on an empty backpack which is very easy to carry, but then you start loading it up with stuff. You're like, whoa, that gets heavy. I said, like, well, that's what it's like. If you don't forgive others, you're carrying all of this baggage. And children typically love object lessons, and they're a very effective teaching aid. But in our text, uh, Jeremiah actually uses several object lessons. Now, many of the prophets throughout the Bible okay, used visible and tangible signs to illustrate God's word. Uh, Ezekiel laid on his side for 390 days. That's interesting. Uh, Isaiah was naked and barefoot for an extended period. Hosea married a harlot. And Jeremiah used a great variety of object lessons, and some are found uh, in our text. In fact, there's quite a few from chapter 13 through to around about chapter 20. Now, the 13th chapter is composed of what we could call five units. Okay, the first being verses 1 to 11, and then 12 to 14, 15 to 17, 18 to 19, and 20 to 27. Now, as we're seeing throughout our study of the book, exact dates are difficult to determine. Okay, we've identified previously that historical chronology is not the concern okay, of Jeremiah, but rather material has been ranged, arranged sorry, thematically. And uh, this chapter is a collection of varying object lessons and prophetic words and the common binding thread, which shouldn't surprise us, is imminent judgment. So how I'd like to approach this text is to unpack the varying object lessons and images contained within the five different units and then draw out one lesson from each point. And each lesson will teach us something about sin which will help us as we battle against it in our lives. Okay, so the first unit is verses 1 to 11, and this contains the object lesson of the linen girdle. So let's read from verse 1. Now thus saith the Lord unto me, Go and get thee a linen girdle, and put it upon thy loins, and put it not in water. So I got a girdle according to the word of the Lord, and put it on my loins. And the word of the Lord came unto me the second time, saying, Take the girdle that thou hast got, which is upon thy loins, and arise, go to Euphrates, and hide it there in a hole of the rock. So I went, 
and hid it by Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And it came to pass after many days that the Lord said unto me, Arise, go to Euphrates, and take the girdle from thence which I commanded thee to hide there. Then I went to Euphrates and digged and took the girdle from the place where I hid it. And behold, the girdle was marred. It was profitable for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, After this manner will I mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people which refuse to hear my words, which walk in the imagination of their heart and walk after other gods to serve them and to worship them, shall even be as this girdle which is good for nothing. For as the girdle cleaveth to the loins of a man, so have I caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord, that they might be unto me for a people and for a name and for a praise and for a glory, but they would not hear. So these 11 verses contain three different commands from God and each time Jeremiah responds in obedience and then it closes with a divine interpretation of the lesson. Now we see in verse 1 that the Lord told Jeremiah to go and purchase a linen girdle. Okay, So he went down to the local menswear shop, the tailor measured him up and he got a brand new linen girdle. Okay, this could refer to one of two items of clothing. Some see it as a short skirt that was wrapped around the hips, reaching about halfway down the thighs. So this was an undergarment, whereas others believe this is a belt or a sash that would be tied around the waist. Now, I believe it's more likely that this is a belt or a sash, as that would be more visible. Now, it's interesting that a linen sash was not a part of the typical prophetic attire, but it was a priestly accessory. Leviticus 16.4 mentions the linen girdle of the priest. And this point may stress that Judah was a priestly nation. Okay, that's confirmed for us in Exodus 19.6. Okay, Jeremiah is told in verse 1 that this girdle couldn't be put in water. Now, why this is, we cannot really be certain, but it seems that okay, this is like a prohibition. You're not allowed to throw it in the washing machine. Okay, you can't use bleach to whiten it. So the dirtiness seems to be a part of the imagery, okay, and it may also mean that it will rot quicker. But what we do know is that this new belt that Jeremiah purchased it would have stood out. People would have noticed it. He wore this new belt on his old grubby clothes. And no doubt people were thinking, what in the world is Jeremiah up to this time? Okay, what's, what's he doing? Now, it would be like wearing old jeans, an old t-shirt, and a brand new tie. Okay, or a homeless lady in her usual attire, but she has a Louis Vuitton handbag. Okay, that would stand out. Okay, Jeremiah is then told to go and hide this new belt under a rock at the Euphrates. Now, there is some debate surrounding this. Okay, some believe this is just a vision. Others think this Euphrates refers to a body of water much closer to Jerusalem, perhaps near Anathoth, Jeremiah's hometown. Or it could be speaking of the Euphrates River, literally, okay, which was some 450 kilometers away. Now, the distance is a stumbling block for, for many scholars, 
But this long journey tends to add to the theater of the object lesson, okay? because he, he vanishes for a period of time. It can take a long time to walk 450 kilometers, and then he returns without the belt. He will say, okay, what happened to his new belt? And also, okay, Babylon was near the Euphrates, okay? so that fits with the imagery. Okay, but what I find admirable is that Jeremiah obeyed. Okay, imagine if the Lord told you tomorrow, I want you to walk 450 kilometers and bury a belt under a rock. You know, I'm pretty sure we'd invent some pretty good excuses to avoid doing it. Okay, but not Jeremiah. Now, after some time, Jeremiah receives a third commandment from the Lord. He was to now go and find the girdle. So again, he made the trek to the river. Verse 7 says he had to dig for it. Okay, so like, like the dog that had buried its bone, Jeremiah, he knew exactly where to go and he uncovered this belt. But now it was marred. Now it was good for nothing. It had rotted. It had deteriorated. The mud and the water had affected the belt and now it was gross. But what in the world is this all about? Okay, seems a little bit bizarre. Well, the Lord begins to explain in verse 9. Okay, just like this belt was marred, the Lord was going to do the same thing to the pride of Judah. He was going to destroy its pride. Okay, this pride had manifested itself in three different ways, according to verse 10. And hence, like this girdle, they were going to be good for nothing. They were going to be destroyed by the judgment that was coming. Okay, and notice in verse 12, a belt is tight to one's waist. And this is what Israel used to be like with the Lord. They used to cleave to the Lord. The Lord cleaved to them, but this had been forsaken. Okay, they had become tarnished and spoiled by their gross idolatry. And just like this girdle, they had been ruined by decay. Okay, they were like this rotten garment. Okay, what does this teach us about sin? Okay, well, the lesson is this, the decaying effect of sin. Okay, it's important to understand that sin has an impact on us. Okay, even as Christians, sin is not neutral. What I mean by that is we can't continue in sin and there be no negative side effects. Okay, there are always consequences. Okay, sin will have a corrosive effect on our spiritual lives. Okay, it's like rust. Okay, rust is a cancer that eats metal and it can completely destroy any structure with enough time. Okay, so sin is a rust that eats away at our spiritual lives. Okay, or to change the metaphor, it's like a white ant that's eating away at our spiritual framework. Okay, or from the text, okay, sin causes decay and rot just like with this girdle. Okay, so we need to grasp that sin okay, is not something that we should be trivial about. Okay, we, we should not think that we can live in sin and, and it'll be okay. okay. Believe that a little pornography won't hurt. Okay, crossing boundaries with our boyfriend or girlfriend, it's not that big of a deal. Lying occasionally, you know what, it's fine. Getting angry isn't that bad. Okay, mistreating your spouse, you know, that's just something everybody does. Okay, or whatever it may be. Okay, we cannot tolerate sin in our life because it has a decaying effect. You know, it will hinder and quench the work of the Spirit. 
okay, which means our spiritual growth will be hindered. It will lessen our love for God and our love for others. It will recalibrate our conscience in a bad direction and it will have all kinds of other negative effects. Okay, we need to grasp that sin is a lethal poison. Okay, ultimately, without Christ, okay, it's sin that sends people to hell. Okay, but even for believers, sin has a real effect on our lives. Okay, remember, you can choose your sin, but you don't get to choose the consequences. Okay, the impact and effect it may have on you and others and the damage that it does to the cause of Christ. So this should act as a strong deterrent with God's help to mortify the flesh, put it to death, and not be nonchalant about the sin in our lives. Okay, we can't be casual about something that has such a decaying effect. Okay, the second unit is verses 12 to 14, and it contains the object lesson of the wine bottles. Okay, reading from verse 12. Therefore thou shalt speak unto them this word. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Every bottle shall be filled with wine. And they shall say unto thee, Do we not certainly know that every bottle shall be filled with wine? Then shalt thou say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings that sit upon David's throne, and the priests and the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, saith the Lord. I will not pity, nor spare, nor have mercy, but destroy them. Now, Jeremiah em employs a new object lesson, and it's that of a wine bottle. And he seems to use what was a popular proverb of the time, every bottle shall be filled with wine. And some scholars speculate that this could have been preached at a festival where the wine was flowing. Now, when the people heard this proverb... They would respond, yes, Jeremiah, we, we know, we're aware of that. Perhaps there was some sarcasm in their reply, but why are you talking about wine? Okay, what's going on here? The interpretation is given in verses 13 and 14. Okay, the people were going to be filled, same Hebrew word that speaks of the filling of the bottles. Okay, but the Lord was going to fill them with drunkenness. Okay, now this is not literal, but it's a metaphor to describe the helplessness and the hopelessness of the people. And this analogy of drunkenness could be applied in many ways to illustrate their predicament. Now, Matthew Henry offered this explanation. He said, a drunken man is fitly compared to a bottle or cask full of wine. For when the wine is in, the wit, wisdom, and virtue and all that is good for anything are out. Now God threatens that they shall all be filled with drunkenness. They shall be full of confusion in their counsels, shall falter in all their talk and stagger in all their motions. They shall not know what they say or do, much less what they should say or do. They shall be sick of all their enjoyments and throw them up as drunken men do. They shall fall into a slumber and be utterly unable to help themselves. And like men that have drunk away their reason shall lie at the mercy and expose themselves to the contempt of all about them. So this is a very vivid analogy. They would be like a pathetic drunk, slurred speech, staggering steps, 
utterly useless and unable to do anything profitable. And this vividly pictures the utter helplessness and inability of the people to defend themselves. Now picture a heavily intoxicated man trying to fight a professional boxer. That's the plight of the people. And notice in verse 13, this is widespread. This describes all the people, the kings, the priests, the prophets. Nobody will be sober, meaning there will be no one to help. There's no hope. They're incapable of helping themselves. And in fact, according to verse 14, they will actually turn against each other. Can we read that they will be dashed against one another, that these wine bottles will be smashed Okay, picture all these smashed bottles and the wine filling the room. Okay, the, the people would turn on each other. Okay, they would be against even those closest to them. Can okay, we read in verse 14 that even fathers and sons are fighting each other. And we read of some horrific illustrations of this elsewhere in scripture. Lamentations 4.10 speaks of moms boiling their children to eat. Ezekiel 5.10 says something similar, fathers eating sons and sons eating fathers. Okay, society would be against each other. Nothing would be out of bounds. Every man for himself and utter chaos would reign. Okay, in this judgment, the people would be smashed together like wine bottles and they would be destroyed. Now, what does this teach us about sin? Well, it teaches us that sin turns us against and hurts other people. Now we see in this graphic object lesson that sin turned even family against each other. Okay, it ripped apart what is meant to be one of the tightest bonds. And understand, this is what sin so often does. Okay, it rips apart relationships. Okay, it, it rips them apart like a lion does its prey. It hurts, it wounds, it has a great impact on others. Okay, understand that your sin will never only affect you. Okay, it will have an impact on others. And usually, it's those closest to you. Often, it is those you profess to love the most who are affected the greatest. Okay, we, if you are married, it's often your spouse that is affected greatly by your sin. If you are a parent, the impact on your children can be long-lasting. You can hurt your parents, your siblings, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your friends. Our sin impacts our relationships. It causes tension. It causes friction and can hurt others greatly. Okay, this is the price of sin. And when we choose to get engrossed in sinful practices, it can have detrimental effects on others, even lifelong impacts. Okay, may this act as a deterrent. Okay, may God write this truth on our hearts. Okay, because sin will always cost us more than we're willing to pay. The third unit is verses 15 to 17, and it contains the object lesson of the traveler. Okay, verse 15, hear ye and give ear, be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God, because he caused darkness, and because your feet stumble upon the dark mountains. And while ye look for light, he turn it into the shadow of death and make it gross darkness. But if ye will not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride, 
and mine eyes shall weep sore and run down with tears, because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. Now, have you ever been somewhere and it's a really dark and you have no torch and you're trying to navigate your way around and you're walking really, really slow? Okay, your arms are outstretched like this because you don't want to run into anything. You don't want to trip over or fall into a hole if you're outside. Okay, this is the image that Jeremiah has in mind in verse 16. Okay, it's of a traveler. And the traveler is making his way through a mountain pass, but it gets dark and he can no longer see. And he's trying to make his way through this dangerous path in dense darkness. Okay, that's the image. Judah would be, okay, would hopelessly be, be trying to travel in absolute darkness. Okay, but here's the thing with the traveler. Okay, as the traveler was making his journey, he always had the hope of dawn. Okay, he may have to stop for a while, wait a few hours, but soon light would break forth and he could continue on his journey. But for Judah, dawn would not come. Okay, they would remain in the dark and the Lord would bring destruction upon them. Okay, great darkness like a shadow of death would come sweeping over them. According to verse 17, where we have Jeremiah weeping uncontrollably, they would be taken captive. But I want you to notice why this happened. Okay, it was because in pride, they refused to listen and they failed to glorify God. Notice verse 15, it says, Hear ye and give ear, be not proud. And then the beginning of verse 17, but if ye will not hear. So they refused to listen to the warnings of God that had been sent through the prophets. And notice that this refusal to listen is equated to pride. Okay, refusing to hear and to hearken or to obey God's word is arrogance and pride of the highest order. Okay, this is a leading evidence of the existence of pride in our lives. And it also measures how much pride exists within. Okay, to what extent am I willing to listen and to obey the Bible? Okay, am I willing to change my life when I'm not in harmony with the scriptures? Okay, Judah were not. Okay, they were too hard-hearted to repent, too proud to respond to the word of the Lord. Notice also in verse 16, they failed to glorify God. So they did not respect and revere him, that they didn't honor him or esteem him. And this could include many layers of failure. But it's interesting that Joshua 7, 19, this is the story of Achan. And it says this, my son give, I pray thee. Glory to the Lord God of Israel. So there's the concept, giving glory to the Lord and make confession unto him. Okay, so confessing sin was a definite way of glorifying the Lord, as is obeying his word. Okay, but Judah had committed the ultimate act of treason and they had glorified other gods. They gave glory to Baal. Okay, and due to their pride, and due to their failure to glorify the Lord, darkness was going to descend on them like the darkness overtaking that traveler on the mountain before he can reach shelter. But unlike the traveler, the light of day will not deliver them. 
Okay, the darkness was going to engulf them. And the darkness was Nebuchadnezzar and his army. But what does this have to teach us about sin? Well, it teaches us that misplaced glory and pride are leading causes of sin. Okay, we need to understand that when we sin, okay, it is a pride-fueled decision that cares more about personal glory, so what I want, more than it does God's glory, what does God want? Okay, this is a leading cause of our sin, pride and self-glory. And although the symptoms okay, or the sins will vary greatly, it could be anger, could be idolatry, could be lying, coveting, and so forth, it's important that the roots of the problem is addressed. Okay, and so often, okay, the root problem is pride and self-glory. Hence, we need humility and to be more concerned about God's glory than anything else. Okay, we sin because we often love something more than we love God. It's usually ourselves. Okay, and our greatest concern at that moment is not God's glory, but some other misplaced glory. Okay, and hence to have victory over sin, we, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to grow our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, love Jesus more than the sin. Okay, our love for Jesus, how is that proven? Well, it's proven by obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Okay, so we can't be disobeying and claiming to love Jesus. That's inconsistent. Okay, and we also need an increased and ever-growing concern for the glory of God, okay? Honoring and esteeming him as the most important thing in this whole world, okay? As the Holy Spirit produces these things, this is how we can overcome sin. The fourth unit is verses 18 and 19, which is about the royal family. Okay, verse 18, say unto the king and to the queen, Humble yourselves, sit down, for your principalities shall come down, even the crown of your glory. The cities of the south shall be shut up, and none shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive, all of it. It shall be wholly carried away captive. Okay, these verses are actually a brief poem. And in the Hebrew, they are called a, a kinah. And if I've completely butchered that, please forgive me. I've never studied Hebrew. But it's a poetic lament. Okay? And often such poems would be sung by the professional mourners at a funeral. Okay? So this is a lament triggered by what was going to happen to the royal family. Now verse 18 mentions the king and the queen. Okay? The Hebrew word translated queen can also be understood as the mother of of a ruler. And that's how commentators understand this verse. Scholars believe the king is Jehoiachin and his mother is Nehushta. And she was especially important because her son was only 18 when he came to the throne. So she was a chief advisor. Okay, but here they are warned to humble themselves because they are about to be disgraced. Okay, they would be toppled. The word principalities in verse 18 refers to dominion or headship. So their position was going to be taken from them, that the crown would topple. And there would be no way of escape. 
Okay, the enemy would come from the north, meaning escape in that direction wouldn't be possible. And we're told that the cities in the south, okay, they were all shut. Okay, they had their gates closed, that, that they were ready okay, for, for the threats as they come. Hence, there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. No one would rescue them. Okay, Judah, including the king and his mother, would be taken captive. Okay, and this prophecy was fulfilled. It's recorded for us in 2 Kings 24. Okay, this king, Jehoiachin, he only reigned for three months, a very short time period. And we read from verse 13 in 2 Kings 24. It says, And he, that's Nebuchadnezzar and his men, carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. Okay, so everything from the temple, everything from the king's palace, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. And he carried away all Jerusalem and all the princes and all the mighty men of valor, even 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remained, save the poorest sort of the people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon and the king's mother and the king's wives and his officers and the mighty of the land. Those carried he into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this lament of royal disgrace in, in our text was fulfilled literally just as Jeremiah warned. That was the text that I just read from 2 Kings 24. Okay, the king, his mom, his wives, all the treasures of the royal palace, no doubt including their crowns, were all taken captive. So what does this teach us about sin? Okay, well we're taught that no one is immune from its consequences. Okay, even the royal family, those with the most money, power, and influence were not spared from the consequences of sin. Even they came under the judgment of God. And this reminds us that no matter who you are in this world, you're accountable to God. Okay, even the most famous, rich, powerful, influential individual, okay, none of that helps you escape the consequences of your sin before God. Okay, the Lord can and does bring consequences in this life, and there will certainly be ramifications after this life if one does not know Christ as Savior. Okay, it's clear from the text that nobody is immune to the consequences of sin. Okay, so don't be so foolish to think that, hey, I can just live in sin, everything will be okay. Okay, don't think that, you know, I, I can do whatever I want, okay, I can sin and sin and sin, and the Lord will continue to bless me. Okay, that, that's not how it works. Okay, no one is immune from sin's consequences. Now, the fifth unit is found from verse 20 down to verse 27, and it contains the object lesson of the disgraced harlot. So we read from verse 20. Okay, lift up your eyes and behold them that come from the north. Where is the flock that was given thee, thy beautiful flock? What wilt thou say when he shall punish thee? For thou hast taught them to be captains, and as a chief over thee, shall not sorrows take thee as a woman in travail? And if thou say in thy heart, wherefore come these things upon me? For the greatness of thine iniquity are thy skirts discovered and thy heels made bare. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Therefore will I scatter them as the stubble that passeth away by the wind of the wilderness. This is thy lot, the portion of thy measure from me, saith the Lord. 
because thou hast forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. Therefore will I discover thy skirts upon thy face, that thy shame may appear. I have seen thine adulteries and thy neighings, the lewdness of thy whoredom, and thine abominations on the hills and the fields. Woe unto thee, O Jerusalem, wilt thou not be made clean? When shall it once be? Now, verse 20 commences by mentioning the invading forces. I can't begin to imagine how terrifying it must be to, to look out and there's an army approaching your city. Okay, that must be a horrible experience. And the question is asked, okay, in verse 21, what will ye say at that time? Okay, well, what will you say when this is unfolding? And verse 22 reveals one response. They ask, okay, why is this happening to us? Wherefore come these things upon me? Okay, in other words, what have we done? Okay, you know, well, what have we done to, to deserve this treatment? Okay, and doesn't that reveal the deceitfulness of sin? That they could honestly think that because they had been warned and warned and warned. Okay, it's like the child. You ask them again and again and again to do the same thing. And then they plead their innocence when discipline time comes. Okay, this is how sin can blind us. And we can so deaden our conscience and convince ourselves with all kinds of reasons and arguments that, that what we're doing isn't that bad. Okay, this is an effect of sin that we need to be aware of. Okay, usually we don't see our own wickedness very clearly. And there's an analogy employed in verse 23 okay, that answers this question. And I can picture Jeremiah thinking to himself, you've got to be kidding me. How can you plead your innocence. I've been warning you for years and years and years. Okay, how can you claim that there's no wickedness? Because you are so wicked that you do no good. Sin has become so ingrained in your nature. It's just a part of your life. Okay, and he uses the metaphor, verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Okay, and the point is this. This is who they are. And it can't be changed. Okay, so so engrossed had they become in idolatry and other wicked practices that it had become who they were. So this judgment was certainly justified. It was fair. It was right that according to verse 24, they should be scattered like the stubble that remains after harvest. But the predominant image used throughout this final section Okay, it's seen in verse 22, 26, and 27 the most clearly. Okay, it mentions in verse 22 that their skirts are discovered or removed and that their heels were made bare. And verse 26 speaks of discovering or stripping off their skirts. Okay, and the image in mind is the public humiliation inflicted on a harlot. Okay, she would often be stripped down, which would reveal her professional attire. And she would be publicly shamed. Okay, she would often be stripped naked because in this culture it was a gross evil and great shame to expose your body. Okay, so this analogy is very appropriate because Judah had played the spiritual harlot. Okay, they'd gone chasing after other gods. And this is described in verse 27. Okay, they had committed spiritual adulteries. Neighing speaks of a female animal on heat trying to attract a lover to meet her needs. Judah had played the harlots. 
And as was the custom of the time, she would be publicly shamed and abused just like a harlot. So, so this is a very graphic object lesson. But what does this teach us about sin? Okay, well, the lesson is we can't change ourselves. Okay, our hearts are more sinful than we realize and that we care to admit. Okay, sin is something that we all struggle with. We all fall short, even as Christians. And the question is asked in verse 27, wilt thou not be made clean? Okay, or, or how long will you be unclean? How long will you continue in sin? And the answer is that we cannot make ourselves clean. Okay, we're, we're like the Ethiopian with his skin, the leopard with his spots. That They can't change that. And we are unable to change our sin nature or overcome the flesh in our own ability. Okay, we can no more cleanse our heart from sin than we can change the color of our skin. How then can we be made clean? And the answer is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Okay, his shed blood is the cleanser for sin. Okay, only Jesus Christ can deal with the dreadful human heart and our sin natures. That's the good news of the gospel. Okay, but even as believers, okay, we've been talking about this through Romans, we can't sanctify ourselves. Okay, we don't have the power in us to overcome sin. We can't change ourselves. But God, in his grace, has given to us the indwelling Holy Spirit. Okay, and understand, in his power, any sin can be overcome. Okay, we, we don't have to be ensnared. Even the most and worst addictive sin patterns can be overcome. Okay, because understand the power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us. Okay, it's possible to break the power of sin. We can be changed. That is the present hope of the gospel. But for this to happen, okay, we need to be walking in the spirit. Okay, and may that be true of us. May we be walking in the spirit. May we be in the word and allowing the spirit to do his changing work in our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I do thank you uh, for this uh, portion of scripture. And uh, Lord, I, I trust that I've explained it uh, adequately. And uh, Lord, please uh, help us to apply uh, your word to our lives. Lord, as we go our separate ways, help us to, to represent uh, you well. And uh, please give us safety as we travel. We ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.